Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Cady. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, Revolution, a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. Here's Pastor Nick. It's embedded in your heart and in your mind, first of all, for yourself, but also for the people around you who need to hear it. But see, Paul, he never would have had this opportunity to speak to these men about this hope that he has if he hadn't gone through the storm himself. He never would have had this opportunity to share with these people the message of hope from God if he had jumped ship because things weren't going the way that he had wanted them to go. Let's continue verse 27. When the 14th night had come and we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they sounded again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that they might run aground on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and they prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors for the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So the waters have calmed down a little bit. They don't know exactly where they are, but they're worried about running aground because there was this thing which mentioned here called the Sirtis. And what the Sirtis is, it's a big sandbar in the Mediterranean. And it's kind of like the Bermuda Triangle, right? It's like a graveyard for ships and vessels on the sea. And so they're worried about running into it. So they start taking these soundings. They realize they're getting, you know, it's, they're, they're getting near some kind of land or something. And so the soldiers, or sorry, the sailors, they get together and they come up with a plan. There's only one lifeboat, that dinghy, which they attached to the back of the boat earlier. Now, there are 276 people, we read at the end of the chapter, on this boat. But you can only fit like 10, 20 people in the lifeboat. So what are you going to do? Well, these sailors say, you know what? Forget these other guys. Let's, let's get our sailors together and we're just going to pretend like we're working on the boat, but in reality, we're going to drop the lifeboat and we're going to get out of here and we're going to be safe, but I don't know about those other guys. They'll be on their own. But see, that's a problem, right? Because if they are the ones who know how to run the boat, they know how to take the soundings, they know how to navigate the boat, they're just going to leave everybody else kind of on their own. Everybody else is going to be in trouble. So Paul tells the soldiers, look, if those sailors leave, we're all going to die. Don't let them do that or we will die. And so the soldiers cut away the lifeboat so that no one can use it, so they're in this together. Now let's read to the end of the chapter, and then we'll make our application. Verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Now from verse 39. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors, let them into the sea, and at the same time loosened the ropes that tied the rudders, and then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, the bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, 
kept them from carrying out their plan, and he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, the rest on planks or in pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to the land. So just as God said would happen in the vision, everyone survived. That word that the Lord gave to Paul gave him so much confidence in the midst of that storm, didn't it? And let me tell you what, the same is true for you and for me. We are able to have an incredible confidence no matter what storms await us in this life if we know what we, that we will indeed reach our final destination. That is the promise of the gospel, that because of what Jesus did for us, we have God's promise that we will indeed get to our destination. And to know that... It gives you an incredible confidence. It gives you an incredible boldness as you navigate this life. But let me point out something to you here. Still on this topic of jumping ship, did you notice that there's kind of an apparent, almost like an apparent contradiction here in what happens? On the one hand, Paul says at the beginning, I had this vision. God spoke to me. We're all going to survive. None of us are going to die. And then a little bit later, some of the sailors try to escape with the boat. And Paul says, if you don't stay, we're all going to die. You kind of wonder, well, which is it? So do you see the problem? God has spoken. Nobody's going to die. It's absolutely certain. I know it will happen. And yet he sees the sailors leaving and he says, unless those guys stay, we're all going to die. So which one is it? Is it that God is in charge, that God has determined beforehand that everyone's going to live? If so, well, then who cares if those guys leave? Let them go, you know? It's already been determined. It's set in stone. You're not going to change what God already decided. It's either one or the other, right? It's either that God's in control, in which case what we do doesn't really matter. Our choices, these people's choices don't matter. Or if our choices do matter, then it would seem that God is somehow limited, that he's kind of just making it up as he goes along, that he's not really in control. So which one is it? Well, what Paul is saying here and what the Bible teaches throughout is that it's not one or the other. It's actually both. It's both. So God is sovereign. God determines things. He's in control of everything. And yet, our choices matter greatly. Our choices have consequences. We're responsible for what we do. It's both at the same time. Now, we tend to think that it's either or. But God says, no, it's both and. And so you might say, okay, so it's both ends. So what is it? Is it like 50-50? Like 50% God's determined purpose and 50% what I choose to do? Or is it more like 80-20? Like mostly God's in control, but there's that 20%, there's that margin where I got some uh, wiggle room. Now what Paul's saying here is this. What the Bible teaches is no, it's not 50-50. It's not 80-20. It's 100-100. God is 100% in charge and you are 100% responsible for what you do. How does that work? Well, you actually see examples of this throughout the entire Bible. Let me give you one here from the book of Acts, which I think is really uh, one of the most poignant ones. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is speaking to a crowd on Pentecost. This is Peter's first sermon that he gives, and he says this phrase. He says, This Jesus, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. In other words, that was, this was God's plan from the beginning, that Jesus would die on the cross for the sins of the world. But then he says, and you crucified him and killed him by the hands of lawless men. So was Jesus' death on the cross planned and ordained by God? Of course. From the beginning of time, God had determined that this had to happen in order for us to be saved. God made sure that it did happen. But yet the people who did it, 
the people who beat Jesus, who killed Jesus, what they did was absolutely wicked. It was wrong. It was bad. It was evil. It was lawless. But it had to happen, right? Yes. They were being used by God in a sense, weren't they? Yes. This was God's plan. It had to happen. Yes, but it was still their choice. See, God ordains exactly what has to happen through our choices, which are indeed our choices, which we are responsible for. So it's not 50-50, it's not 80-20, it's actually 100-100. And what that means is this, what you do absolutely matters. What you do matters very much. There are consequences for your actions. They are important, but at the same time, God has a plan. Things don't just happen randomly. God's in control. And, And these two truths are simultaneously true. Paul says this, he, he looks at this and he understands this. And I want you to see how that understanding, that these two truths are simultaneously true, how that affects his actions. Look at what it does. First of all, he's not passive at all. He, he's leading, he's telling people what they need to do to survive. Don't do that. But yet he's calm. So he's not passive, he's active, but yet he's calm. He has peace even in the midst of a storm. You see, if everything is predetermined, and we're just walking it out, right? Like our actions don't actually matter at all. Then what does that do to you? It makes you passive. It makes you perhaps cynical because who cares? What I do doesn't matter anyway, so why bother? William Carey is known as the father of the modern missionary movement. At the, uh, you know, in the 1790s, William Carey left for India And he translated the Bible into several languages. He paved the way for a movement of missionaries that would come after him that has literally changed the world. If you want to know how much it's changed the world, consider this, that in the past 200 years, Africa has gone from 5% Christian to over 50% Christian, one of the highest percentages of Christians in the world. And that that is due to the modern missionary movement over the past 200 years. So when William Carey, though, what's interesting about his story, when he first approached the governing board of his denomination and he petitioned them to start a missionary movement, to start sending missionaries to the rest of the world, here's what he was told. This is a quote from the commissioner of their, uh, their denomination. He said, quote, Sit down, young man. You are an enthusiast. When God chooses to convert those people, he'll do it without consulting me or you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings with services at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message. That's very different sentiment, isn't it, than what Jesus said, where he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, and whoever believes will be saved. It's a very different sentiment. You see, if you believe that everything is predetermined and that your actions don't actually matter, then you'll be passive, you'll be indifferent. But if, on the other hand, you believe that it's all up to you, that the weight of the world is on your shoulders, it all depends on you, well, then, of course, you'll be stressed. Paul understands it's not either or, it's, it's both and. And that's why he takes action. He's not passive, but yet he's completely calm. He's totally at peace in the midst of the storm because he understands what I do matters greatly, but yet God is in complete control. 
God is in control. Nobody's going to die, but yet don't let those guys go or else we're all going to die. So maybe you can relate to Paul and the other people in this story. You know, what happens is when temptation, when storms come in our lives, there is this temptation that arises within us to bail out, to jump ship. You can find yourself saying, maybe I should just jump ship. I I can't take this marriage anymore. I can't take this family a day longer. I can't take this job anymore. I think I'm going to just bail. Maybe you look at your husband and you say, he's not the man that I thought he would be when I married him. Maybe you look at your wife and you say, you know what, she's changed. She's not someone that I'm passionate about like I once was. Maybe it's another area of your life where you're tempted to jump ship or bail on some commitment that you've made. Maybe like the guys in this story, you've even, con- you've even started lowering the lifeboat to the water because you're thinking about it, you're making plans to actually do it. Let me encourage you that your actions matter greatly. God has a plan, though. He has a plan to see you through the storm, so don't jump ship. Rather, like they did in this story, cut away the lifeboats, get rid of the contingency plan, let them go. God has a plan, and your actions matter very much, so do the right things, and yet rest in the knowledge that God is in control. That's our first one, jumping ship. Now let's move on to our, our second point here, which is this. Why is this happening? Why does God allow storms? Why does he send storms? Think about this, continuing with this metaphor of a storm at sea. If you're in a boat and a storm comes and you're able to keep a hold of the rudder, then when the storm is over, you'll actually be a lot closer to your destination than you ever would have been if that storm hadn't happened. In other words, that storm will move you forward more quickly than you could have ever otherwise. If you can survive the storm, you'll be better off for having gone through it. Throughout the Bible, you can see some of the different things that God accomplished through storms. For example, when Jonah was running away from God, God sent a storm to turn him around. He was doing something that he shouldn't have been doing and God used a storm to turn his life around and and bring him back to him and what he was supposed to be doing. Now when the disciples of Jesus were on the Sea of Galilee, God used a storm to teach them an important lesson about who Jesus was and that caused them to grow in their faith and in their trust in Jesus' power and his care for them. And here in Acts 27, God uses a storm in order to work in the lives of many people. First of all, the people in the boat with Paul, he brings them to a place where they are open to hearing what Paul has to say about God. But also this island that they land on, we are going to find out in the next chapter, it was actually the island of Malta. And we're going to see next week that Paul's sufferings open up an opportunity for him to share the hope of the gospel with the people on Malta. So God used suffering in that way too. Now, I don't know about you. I don't know what the exact purposes of the storms in your life are going to be, but I can assure you of this. Ultimately, it is for good. Ultimately, all the storms in your life and in my life, ultimately, they are for good. And that's a radical thing to wrap your mind around. Think about that. Now, how do I know that? Well, because that's what the Bible teaches. I'll give you some examples. Think about the story of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis. Joseph was one of 12 brothers, and he was his father's favorite son, and his father treated him better than he treated any of his brothers. And that favoritism that was shown to Joseph, it caused a lot of problems in his family, as you can imagine. It caused his brothers to become absolutely resentful against Joseph. 
And so when they got the chance, when they were in a desert place away from civilization, nobody could see what was going on, they, uh, they ambushed Joseph. They attacked him, they beat him, and they put him in a pit, and they were going to kill him. But they decided to sell him into slavery in Egypt. Now, I know that siblings don't always get along, but that's pretty extreme, right? Like selling your brother into slavery. So Joseph gets taken to Egypt as a slave. And if that weren't enough, while he's a slave, he actually gets accused of a crime falsely because this woman accuses him for something he didn't do. And so he goes to prison and he's in prison for years. Now think about how much lower can you actually get? First of all, you're a slave. And if that's not bad enough, now you're in jail. And he stays in jail for years. But here's what happens. Because he's in Egypt, because he's in prison, he ends up being in this position where he's able to single-handedly save the lives of thousands of people from a famine, including his own life, including his family, including the entire Jewish nation from which one day will come Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In other words, if he hadn't been sold into slavery... He would never have been in a position to do that. If he hadn't ended up in prison, even though it was unjust, he never would have been in a position to do that. If all of these things hadn't happened to him, presumably he and his family would have starved to death, the Jewish nation would have died out, and God's plan of redemption to bring a Savior and a Messiah through this nation would have been extinguished. And yet in the end, Joseph is able to look at his brothers and he tells them this, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good and for the saving of many. You know, that's the same thing that Paul says in Romans 8, 28, where he says, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Notice there, it doesn't say that all things are good if you just look at them from the right perspective. No, not all things are good. Some things are bad. Some things are terrible. Some things should not be. But the promise of the Bible is this. That God, in his foreknowledge, in his sovereignty, has planned and written history in such a way that even evil will backfire and will ultimately accomplish the good that God desires. In other words, he's working all things together so that in the end, even the bad things will end up accomplishing something very good. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So why do storms happen? Why does God allow them? Because on the one hand, we live in a broken world where people sin, people hurt each other, bad things happen, people make bad choices. And yet on the other hand, God is absolutely sovereign. He is working all things together for good according to his purpose. But then the question would be this. If God uses storms in our lives, as we see these different examples of it, how can we be sure that when we face storms in our lives, that we'll do it right, that we'll get it, that we'll, we'll get it right when God sends the storms in our lives and we'll learn the things he wants us to learn and things will go the way they're supposed to go. And that brings us to our final point, and that is the personal pronouns. In the midst of the story, Paul tells these 200 people there, as they're going through the storm together, he says this, this very night, an angel of The God to whom I belong stood by me. The God to whom I belong. Martin Luther said this. He said, the sweetness of the gospel lies in the pronouns. Think about that. The sweetness of the gospel lies in the pronouns. Me, my, thy, Jesus Christ, my Lord, who loved me and gave himself for me. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. You see, the sweetness of the gospel lies in the pronouns. He says, the angel of the God whom I serve, whom I be, to whom I belong, stood by me. 
That's covenant language. That's the language of intimate relationship. You don't say, my Bobby or my Jill, unless that's a person you have an intimate relationship with, unless that's your spouse or your son or your daughter. Personal possessives. You see, that's what happens when God is no longer just God, but he is my God. And and I become his, as Paul says, the God to whom I belong. So I was reading a, a post on Facebook this week from some friends of mine, uh, a couple, and the husband, you know, there's like a picture or something, and he wrote this caption and said, she's mine. And you know what uh, the wife said? What do you think she said? Do you think she said, you don't own me? How dare you say that you own me, that I'm yours in some sense, right? I'm my own person. You don't own me. I don't belong to you. No, of course that's not what she said. Her response was, yes, I am yours and you are mine. You see, that is the language of love. That's the language of covenant relationship that revels in the fact of giving yourself to another person and them giving themselves to you, that you are theirs and they are yours. And that's the kind of relationship that God calls us into, not a consumer relationship, which is based on what can you do for me? What can you give to me? But a covenant relationship is one in which you give yourselves to each other. So let me ask you, do you have that kind of relationship with God? Where you can say like Paul did, he is my God to whom I belong with all that I am. I am not my own, I belong to him and he is my God. If you do have that kind of relationship with God, I'll tell you what happens. You will not make the mistakes that people commonly make when storms come into their lives and they say, well, why is this happening to me? Surely it must be that God is punishing me or that God has abandoned me. Obviously, God doesn't care about what's happening to me. No, Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't go that place. He's able to say in the midst of the storm, my God to whom I belong. I am his and he is mine. And therefore I know that whatever is happening to me right now, it isn't that God has abandoned me. It isn't that God is punishing me, but he is with me and he loves me. He's committed to me. And therefore, what is, why is this happening to me? It must be that God has a purpose with this storm. And even though this situation is bad, God's purpose is to use it for good. How can you be sure of that? How can you be sure that God really does care about you like this? That he really is this committed to you? I'll tell you how. You look to the cross. You look to Jesus. You look and you see what Jesus did for you. On the cross, Jesus took the ultimate storm of God's wrath in your place. You are the one who deserved it because each of us, we've sinned, we've fallen short, but Jesus took that storm, that storm of punishment from God in our place so that we could have life and forgiveness, so that we could be made right with God. You can be assured of God's love for you because Jesus didn't jump ship. Jesus didn't bail out. On the cross, Jesus was abandoned by the Father so that you could be accepted into that covenant relationship. He took the punishment that our sins deserved. And therefore, when storms arise in my life, in your life, we can know that they aren't punishment, that they aren't God abandoning us because that already happened. Jesus already went there. Rather, those storms are being used by a loving God for good. And he will see you through. Amen?
And I'd like to invite you today, if there are any of you who would, here who would say this, you know, you talk about this idea of covenant relationship with God. I don't have that kind of relationship with God that you described. I, I can't say like Paul did, that he is my God to whom I belong. Well, I'd like to give you an opportunity to do that today. So we're gonna pray, and then I'll lead you in a prayer at the end. Lord, we thank you for this truth of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, that we can have this relationship with you because of what Jesus did where we can know that the difficulties that happen in our lives, Lord, that you are absolutely in control and that you will use all of it for good. Thank you for this, Lord. And I pray for all of us today that we would have that kind of covenant relationship that Paul had with you where he was able to say, my God to whom I belong, I am his and he is mine. Right now, Lord, I pray for anybody here with us today who would say, you know what? I want that. I know it's good. I know it's right and I desire it, but I don't think I'm there yet, but I want to be there. Lord, I pray for those people here today, people hearing this later, Lord, who would say, that's me. Lord, I pray that you would bring them to that place today of surrender, that they would say in their heart, yes, Lord, I receive your grace. I receive your forgiveness. I receive the new life. And I pray that, Lord, you would come into me, make me new, give me new life. In Jesus' name, we pray that in your name, Lord. You've been listening to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We have three in-person services on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. And our 9.30 and 11 services are live streamed on our website for those who would like to worship with us online. We are located just east of County Line Road and Highway 119 at 2950 Colorful Avenue in Longmont. For more information or to hear other messages from Pastor Nick, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. Be Set Free is a listener-supported program. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support this ministry, you can send a donation via check to 2950 Colorful Avenue, Longmont, Colorado, 80504, or donate online at besetfreeradio.com. 